Hi, I'm Len Epps from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Gordon Webster. Gordon earned his PhD in biophysics and structural biology at the University of London, and has worked in life science R&D in both Europe and the U.S., and he's currently based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He has both academic and commercial experience and is the author of a number of patents in addition to scientific articles. In his profile, he writes that his career path has always reflected his belief that the most important that the most interesting and potentially promising areas of research lie at the intersections between the traditional scientific disciplines, and I'm sure we'll get to talking about that in just a bit. You can follow Gordon on Twitter at gwebster, and read his blog, The Digital Biologist, at digitalbiologist.com. Gordon is the author of the LeanPub book, Getting Started with Python in the Lab, an introductory Python tutorial for life scientists, and more recently, along with Alex Lancaster, he is co-author of the LeanPub book, Python for the Life Sciences, a gentle introduction to Python for life scientists. Python for the Life Sciences is a great introduction to computer programming written with the interests of biologists in mind, in particular those who haven't written any code before. Along with the book, you get code samples that you can learn from and even use for your own research. The book covers topics including biochemistry and gene sequencing, molecular mechanics, and agent-based models of complex systems. In this interview, we're going to talk about Gordon's professional interests, his books, his experience using LeanPub, and at the very end, ways we can improve LeanPub for him and other authors. So thank you, Gordon, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Al, well, thank you for having me. Um, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself and, and what I'd like to call um, you, you, an interviewee's origin story, um, how you first became interested in biophysics and structural biology and how you got to where you, where you are now. Sure. I mean, I think um, my interest in biophysics kind of started with seeing three-dimensional structures of DNA and proteins and stuff like that. I remember being very captivated by that kind of intersection of physics and biology. And so I, I went into biophysics um, kind of w w related to the thing you mentioned a moment ago about the fact that I really enjoy things that are on the boundaries of two different disciplines. So, so the idea of, uh, of using physics to study biology actually really appealed to me. And it's kind of there's a sort of a certain mindset and methodology to physics that doesn't always work, I have to say, in biology. But um, it's yeah, it's, it's an incredibly interesting area. The, the other thing that sort of spurred my interest in biophysics was computers. So I was, you know, I, I remember in the 1980s, I got a home computer. I was completely, you know, hooked from the minute I started writing basic on a home computer and, you know, all through college. I always pursued kind of projects and electives where I had a chance to to do computing. So that's always been a big part of my career, too. So the whole kind of bio, biophysics is a very computational, uh, you know, sort of quantitative, numerically intensive kind of field. And so the computer stuff has always been, you know, played a very large part in that. And what is the difference between, say, what one might conventionally understand to be biology and biophysics? I mean, there's. I mean, I, I I kind of paint this picture of a spectrum. So there's sort of a one end of the spectrum of biology. You have the kind of, you know, evolution and and sort of field biology. You know, studying species and animals and the way they interact and and all this kind of thing. And you know, and then there's all the sort of classification, taxonomy, and botany and stuff. And then at the opposite end of the of the sort of spectrum, you have the the sort of the almost metomic and molecular biology so this is 
I call it the sort of the the study of dead stuff. And it's it's kind of ironic that when you get when you get to the very small scale in biology, down to atoms and molecules, nothing really looks like biology anymore because you know you're essentially studying things that are governed by the laws of physics and chemistry. And it isn't until you get further towards that first end of the spectrum that I described, you know, where you you start to look at organisms and reproduction and and you know survival and evolution and populations of organisms and the dynamics of those populations that you see anything that you could really call biology. So it's kind of interesting that um, at the very small scale, a lot of the stuff that biologists study really looks like um, chemistry and physics. That's really fascinating. Um, I wanted to ask you, what was the um, what was the subject of your research for your PhD at the University of London? So I studied structural and computational biology. So I was looking at, um, there was a great interest at that time in finding ways of shutting off certain gene sequences. And we didn't have the kind of technology then for developing, you know, these kind of like silencing RNAs and, and technology that's out there now of that sort. People were very interested in looking at drugs that could bind to DNA and actually close down a certain, you know, gene, essentially by binding to the beginning of the gene or the gene promoter and shutting off that gene. And the goal was was always to try to to be able to control gene expression so that you could, for example, cure cancer or, or other diseases that had a, you know, a genetic component. I'm sure um, probably some of the people listening to this podcast have um, heard about CRISPR. Um, and uh, right. how powerful that is. And I was wondering if, if, since I've got you here, if you wouldn't mind maybe explaining a little bit about what that is and why it's so important. Yeah, CRISPR is a is a, an interesting system of, uh, it's, it's sort of enzymes or, 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 or a sort of a, a gene editing system that people have found in organisms. So it's something that, you know, it's not human made, it's not invented, it existed in nature. And and now there's a number of companies who are trying to essentially patent it and, and develop it for use as a gene editing tool. So so the, the former dogma of uh, biology has always been that, you know, once you've established sort of a, a you know, gene sequence in a cell that, that, that it's there forever and that there's not much you can do about it. You can you can put things into the cell maybe to switch it off. But then those things need to be there all the time. The difference with the sort of CRISPR approach is that now you're basically going in and, and looking to edit the genes themselves that are in the that are in the cell, so so that you 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 know you're you're, you're interfering with the cells' um, kind of processes at the genetic level, which is something we've not really been able to do before. And what do you think then some of the new applications might be that that people can make of, of this? Well, I know, I know that obviously people are very interested in disease. Um, so some of the genetic diseases, so there, there are genetic diseases where people are born, for example, you know, without like a vital, a vital, the gene that codes for a vital enzyme, for example, that processes um, uh, carbohydrates in the cell. There are some people that have kind of uh, deficiencies in, in processing certain kind of chemicals that are essentially vital to to growth and life and those people often don't live very long they 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 often die as children i know that there's a lot of interest in trying to fix those genes whereas previously all you could do was try to intervene with drugs and things like this um now there's there's an effort to, you know to, to try to fix those kind of diseases at the, again at the genetic level 
So, so that's something that, again that we've never really been able to do before. There, there were attempts sort of in the 90s. I mean, you probably heard about gene therapy, which was kind of in the in the 90s. People were were trying to do gene therapy with viruses, and viruses have a, also a very interesting kind of gene editing capability. So, so for example, a lot of viruses, when they invade cells, they'll splice their own gene sequences into cells and and kind of co-opt the cell to produce more virus instead of producing what the cell wants to produce. And so people thought that maybe viruses could be a way to do gene editing and a lot of gene therapy uh, early on was done with viruses. And it, that, that field is still going. Uh, it's not it's not dead or anything, but uh, I think that the CRISPR thing is kind of a, an advance beyond that in terms of having much more control over the way the gene is edited. The problem with the viruses, I think, is that it wasn't always very easy to control where the virus would put the would put the gene that you wanted into the into the cell um, my next question is um, uh, kind of personal and a little bit selfish um, I lived in London <laughs> for a few years working um, and I studied in in um, the UK at Oxford doing my doctorate there and I always thought Oxford was the perfect distance from London it was just far enough away that you <laughs> that it took some time to get there um, but it was close enough that you could still go there and enjoy London. But I always right. wondered what it was like, what it would be like, because there's so many great universities in London, but what it would be like to actually be a student with all the fantastic distractions of London life around you. Um, what was what was that like studying, do, doing your doctorate in, in London? It was awesome. And <laughs> you're, you're right that it was, it was sometimes not easy to... Uh, to focus on, you know, work when you had all that stuff. I, you have to also bear in mind, I mean, I was there in the 80s. So, I mean, this was the era when, you know, people like The Clash were playing at the Hammersmith Palais. And, you know, this was, it was, it was an incredible time to, to, to be, you know, to be young and, and also to be a student in London. And I, I absolutely had a marvelous time there, maybe sort of too good a time sometimes. But yeah, it was, it was fantastic. I, I just had a really, really, great time. It's, it's a wonderful city. It's just, it's so fantastic. I mean, just going, I mean, I, you know, I wasn't there in the same area you were, but like just going to Camden, um, any given night, um, you can find fantastic bands playing. Um, or yeah, I mean, it's just so amazing. Um, uh, I was, I wanted to ask you about, um, Amber biology, which is the consulting firm that you have with your co-author, um, Alex Lancaster. Um, when did you when did you set up your consultancy and what kind of work do you do? So I created the consultancy about three years ago, and originally I had a partner who was somebody I used to work with when I was working sort of more in a sort of the mainstream of the pharmaceutical business. Um, and he, you know, he was kind of uh, somewhat engaged at the beginning, but he he had a day job and he didn't really want to give up his day job, and he ended up kind of becoming a silent partner. And in the end, I had to sort of, uh, I, I, I guess the company was kind of moribund for, for a few months. And in the end, I persuaded him to relinquish uh, his partnership so that I could, you know, work with Alex because Alex was very interested in, in being actively engaged in amber biology. And so we had a change of partnership last year. I finally got all the paperwork through, like in summer of last year, which is about when we sort of started on the book as well. 
And then essentially we've been building the business. The business has been going for three years as Amber Biology, but Alex and I have been working together for about a year and a half now. So, so it's about a year and a half we've been doing it together. And the kind of work we do is, is all computational biology. So any, any, anything you can do in, in which biology and, uh, can be done on computers. And, and this includes um, a lot of things that are, I mean, people, when you talk about biology and computers, a lot of people immediately think of bioinformatics. It's kind of the big area that everybody's heard of. People think about gene sequencing and, you know, genomics and gene analysis. And that's certainly stuff that we do as well. But, but both of us have a background in modeling and simulation in biology. And that's an area that we are really keen to pursue. It's still, I would say, well, there's a whole backstory here and, and we can get into that if you're interested, but I would say it's still very early in biology for people doing modeling and simulation. So if you think about physics and civil engineering and things like that, you know, practically simulation and modeling are, are a mainstream of research in physics, for example. I mean, people model, you know, movement of stars and planets with, you know, models using sort of gravitational models. They, they plug the observations from telescopes into them. And then when you have a sort of a, a deviation of the model from the observations, that that's actually interesting because, for example, if you I, I give it this is an example I like to give where models can be wrong but still informative. And that is that if you're studying a binary star system and you, you plug in the Newtonian gravitational model and you find that it doesn't match the observations, what that often tells you is that there's hidden mass there that you can't see with the telescope. And that, that's usually you know one or more planets orbiting one of the stars. And so the deviation of the model from the observations gives you... Um, gives you kind of a, a, a clue as to as to how much mass is missing and where that where that mass is and that kind of thinking that kind of mindset of using modeling and simulation is really prevalent in physics and civil engineering similarly i mean you you want to build a suspension bridge it's going to get built in cad in a virtual sense before any before any steel or concrete gets built in the real world and then all the pieces get tested in cad and the, the there's feedback from the you know the the physical testing of all the pieces of the bridge back into the into the computer model and that's the kind of place that we would like to see biology go and and but it's still extremely early and and most modeling in biology right now is is exclusively the confine of people doing for the most part theoretical biology and those people are often people who have backgrounds for example in computer science and who are doing this kind of thing that you talked about earlier of straddling, you know, different disciplines and bringing computer science ideas into biology. And, and so um, this is the kind of area that we're really interested in. But, but like I said, it's, it's very early in biology right now. Yeah, I really like that analogy. I found it in something that you wrote, I think, on your blog that um, the reason I think I think it might have been. I mean, I don't know if you use this example specifically, but. I think it was Neptune was discovered because uh, people saw deviations from the expected movement of another planet. Um, right. So they derived from the deviations from the model they had of the way the whole system worked, what must be going on. And this, what you're saying, I think, in, is that the uh, biology is, is given current understanding of it too complex to have a kind of whole model 
in the, right. in the simple exactly. way. Exactly. In, in exactly. Uh, I mean, people think physics is really complicated, but even physicists will tell you in some ways that it's very simple. Um, and and um, uh, it reminded me of the story of uh, Vulcan, which was this planet people thought existed because I think they saw deviations in the movement of mer Mercury that they couldn't explain. Um, and it took centuries until Einstein to figure out that it, there wasn't, well, I mean, people realized from observation that it wasn't there. There was no planet there causing the deviation, so it must be something else. And then it actually took a fundamental change in the entire model to understand why Mercury was moving the way it was. And I guess what you're saying is biology is so far from even having a kind of model of the first type in the first place um, that, it, you know, getting to that second step um, isn't, isn't there yet. Um, you, you have a blog. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and the other issue is that people who have not had a lot of experience with modeling, which is true for the most part in biology, they tend to think of modeling like weather forecasting. So, you know, the idea is you have this very big, very complete model with, with essentially data points for everything. You know, every, every all the data are very well represented, very, very complete and and then you you know you you kind of run the model and you make predictions and and this kind of idea that, that an incomplete or partial model could be of any value is is you know something that most i think most people in the biological field tend to dismiss modeling because of these kind of fears because of the complexity well you know how could you model the inside of a cell because there's just too many moving parts you have um a great blog post um, called Big Data Does Not Equal Big Knowledge. Um, I'm sure everyone's heard talk about big data by now, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about what you're getting at in that blog post. And you talk in particular about how visualizations aren't necessarily, or the type of visualiz visualizations that people often get from data um, are not necessarily as useful in the life sciences as they might be in other fields. Yeah. So, so, I mean, with these numerical quantitative approaches, it's a little like the kind of uh, sort of demographic data mining that political campaigns and advertisers do. You know, it's like sort of looking at trends in the data. And I think there are lots of areas where that kind of approach works really well. And in biology, I mean, you can do it, too. I think I give the example of, you know, like dose response curves and things like this, you know, where you have simple a relatively simple system with not too many variables operating under the surface. Uh, but the problem, the problem with, uh, I, I mean, the examples for, for example, where, where this kind of stuff has really failed dismally is in, in areas like, like sort of gene expression and genomics. So people were, you know, sure that once the human genome project was complete, I mean, I remember, um, I think it was uh, Watson was saying, you know, oh, within a couple of years of this, you know, all the cancer will be a thing of the past and we'll we'll have a handle on all of the sort of disease genotypes and, and, and so on. And and really what we learned from that is that we just we don't really understand the genome as well as we thought we did. So having having I, I mean, having all the having the human genome sequence is a bit like having the physical location of any neuron in your brain. I mean, it, it's it's still a long way from explaining consciousness. I mean, you know, you could map the brain to, in the greatest detail, but it still doesn't exactly tell you how the system works. And I think with with big data. What people are trying to do is 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 say, well, I don't really understand what mechanisms are under the hood here, but if I look at the data under one set of conditions, under another set of conditions, and I carefully weight weight the data so that I'm you know I'm not comparing apples and oranges, 
then basically if I can see some you know significant differences in the data those may point to where the problem or where the issue is whatever the thing is I'm trying to investigate actually lies and you know it's a valid approach in a lot of ways I mean it's not it's not crazy um and and you know some of the low-hanging fruit has probably been picked in that in that sort of approach but but for example patterns of gene expression or patterns of phosphorylation in the phenotypes of cells those things are so complex there's so many different moving parts and um it might be for example that what you're looking for isn't the biggest difference between one set of genes expressing and another but maybe some pattern of differential expression that might be buried in all the noise that you you know, you, you cut out because you think it's not it's not significant. But but it might be like the, the, the you know, some some recurring pattern of ten different genes, all of which have very small but significant deviations when you when you look at them all together. You know, it's, so so these are the kind of um these are the kind of things that big data is is trying to you know to uncover. And the visualization thing is is also usually, you know, you apply a lot of filters to the data you 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 try to to make the, you know you try to pull out the differences in the data in the way that's like a sound engineer would try to filter background out of a a recording as you were saying earlier about your software for doing audio uh, filtering um, and I think that the problem is that it, it's an effort to sidestep the complexity of the biology and and it's partly driven by this fear that well I could build a model but how could I ever build a complete model? You know, it's, it's, it's always going to be a partial model at best. And so that probably isn't going to work. Um, you mentioned um, earlier um, failure and, and you just mentioned sidestepping. And that leads me, leads me into my next um, planned question for you, which was uh, I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about Theranos. Um, I'm sure a lot of people listening have heard about this company um, that's uh, turned into a pretty catastrophic failure uh, in the in the health uh, sciences area. Um, and I know you've written about it on your blog, The Digital Biologist, which is um, the reason I'm bringing it up. And I, I wanted to ask you, how can something like this, well, if you could explain a little bit um, about what Theranos is and um, how it failed, and how can something like this happen in, in the sciences, I think is a question that a lot of people have. I mean, we, the layperson associates science with rigor um and there appears to have been this huge fraud right i mean i think the one thing i would say is that yes that the lay people do tend to think of scientists as being um almost kind of like mr spock you know like like that is illogical that that, that is logical and, and everything is kind of decision making devoid of all that other you know human baggage like emotion and ambition and greed and all that kind of stuff and the truth is that it's really a still a very much a human activity and you know the application of the scientific method there's this kind of ideal view of it if you if you you know look at the books on the philosophy of science you know and Karl Popper and all this kind of stuff there's this very um you know idealized sort of platonic sort of ideal of, of of what the scientific method is but when you when you start to combine science and commerce then all that human stuff it still plays a role and, it, and honestly it plays a role even in academic research there i mean it's not so much about money but about prestige and ambition and and you know people in academic research 
you know, sometimes stray because, you know, they want the result that they want because they know it's going to get them that professorship or the or the prize or the prestige or the, you know, the, the recognition within the community that they want. And so the number of cases of academics going off the rails, even over issues about prestige and, and standing in the community are well documented. And when you when you start to think about that in the context of the Theranos thing, I mean, there the stakes are even higher. I mean, you, you're, you're talking about ambition and prestige and standing, but also about billions of dollars and, and you know, in, entire, you know, sort of careers. And, and so it's the human stuff definitely plays a role in science. I mean, they're, they're you, yeah. It's really interesting in particular. I remember when I first heard about the company, um, I looked into it and I saw that, I mean, I, I, this is currently on its board, but it's also, in addition to be very human and with a business with lots of money at stake, it was extremely political. I mean, you've got a currently you've got a former well, former Wells Fargo CEO, um, uh, a company that's also in the news these days, um, and a retired Marine Corps general on the board. Um, and on its list of counselors currently, it includes, you know, Bill Frist, a former U.S. Senate Majority Leader, and Sam Nunn, a former senator and chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and incredibly. To top it all off, Henry Kissinger um, <laughs> right. was involved. Um, and do you think that one of the reasons they could get away with their self-representation was all of these powerful people were behind it and that that may have deterred you know, people from seeing the truth earlier? Yes. I mean, I think I, I liken this to... There's, there's a, I mean, I like, I liken the Theranos problem and problems that a lot of the, a lot of biotech and pharmaceutical companies have, generally with the kind of, um, the problems, for example, that NASA had. So, so you know, at NASA, you, 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 you I, I, I understand that one time, there was kind of a management culture. You had a lot of people managing projects who were driven by deadlines and, and as you said, think political considerations. Who weren't really engineers and didn't really understand the risks and understand the systems, the complex systems that they were building. And the Challenger disaster, for example, was was a, was an example where this kind of management culture essentially overrode the the culture that should have prevailed at NASA, which is one where, in, in my opinion, you know. For, for for those kind of projects, you need engineers who understand the systems that are being built and the risks inherent in those systems. Those are the kind of people that should be running the project. And at Theranos and, and you know, not only Theranos, but other biotech and pharma companies, too, what you often have is, is kind of a, a management mindset where you have people who, you know, maybe did a undergraduate degree in science and never really done a lot of research I, I don't want to slam MBAs here but there's definitely a, there's definitely a, a sort of a, a you see a lot of MBAs in high places in the pharmaceutical industry driving R&D who've never really done any R&D themselves and so I, I, I think that you know you have this kind of culture now where there's um there's this kind of management culture. You know, people go to business school, they get an MBA, they they feel that it makes them qualified to to oversee all kinds of human activities, whether or not they really understand, you know, 
the risks and 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 the sort of the processes inherent to that to that uh, to to whatever it is that the company or the organization is making and and I feel like with Theranos you have a similar kind of thing I mean the that there was no that they didn't publish any data there was everything was just like radio silence in terms of actually validating the technology and they held out for a really long time i mean obviously now we know from thanks to the wall street journal's reporting that that was because essentially the the stuff didn't work but it would have been it would have behooven them to to have taken a more rigorous approach and known before they had you know gone down that path of wasting all those millions of dollars that this technology wasn't going to work and somebody somebody else might have intervened or the R&D might have been done differently or they might have pivoted much earlier as they've pivoted recently to this new thing when they're no longer um, a provider of blood tests and now they're going to be, a, as I understand it, a developer of hardware for this, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's uh, really interesting um, what you said about um, MBAs and uh, the concept of overseeing. Um, that's actually a subject that's come up um, on some of the interviews that I've uh, done for this podcast repeatedly. Um, and I think it's partly because a lot of the people that I interview um, are uh, software developers. And I mean, I, I could talk about it for a long time, but the, the theory behind a lot of management, I believe, is based on uh, being able to oversee being able to see what people are doing. And it's deep, it's deep in the structure of the way uh, MBAs are taught. Um, so deep that people don't even know it's there. And so for example, if you're watching, um, if you're managing people laying bricks, or if you're managing people building a house, you can have a kind of abstraction around watching. Um, you can see whether people are, you know, having a pint or laying the bricks. You can see whether people, <laughs> Whether people are hammering, you can hear whether they're hammering the nails or whether they're um, uh, playing cards. Um, but a scientist, I mean, you can see her at work in the lab or a software engineer. You can see him sitting at a desk with a computer, but you can't see the work because the work is mental. Um, and it seems to me that this is a, a real problem in an era where software is eating the world. Um, and we need a new way of thinking about management. And the thing that keeps coming up in these conversations is that you need to have uh, domain-specific expertise mm -hmm. in order to manage people who are doing uh, work that involves primarily uh, things you can't see. Absolutely, and, and and the other thing about R and D generally is that it's it's not it's a very non-linear process. I, I think the management mindset has arisen out of these kind of industries where you have a production line, and you know you have you have this sort of chain of of processes from A through Z, and you, you know you do A B C D, and then if it you know if there's a bottleneck at D, you know you fix that bottleneck so the thing works better. But it's all it's all very much a kind of a process of, you know, box checking and crossing T's and dotting I's and you you have a defined process. And I feel like that management mindset works really well for that. So so the kind of people who who manage well in the pharma business tend to be more, I feel, on the regulatory side where where, you know, once the drug gets through this sort of R and D phase, 
and is now being, you know, in, in sort of development and clinical testing. I feel like the process there, it's, it's still not very, it's still not completely linear for sure, but there's much more of that kind of, uh, you know, production, um, production line kind of mindset there. But R and D is, it's iterative. It's nonlinear. You, you know, you start an experiment, you, you see something really interesting. It can take you off in a whole different direction. No, no amount of management deadlines can mandate that nature is going to behave in, in the way that you want it to. Well, you know, we must have, we must have, you know, an answer from from this particular cell line before December, so we can tell the investor something. And the, if the cell line doesn't want to behave as you expect it to, then you know you've got all kinds of questions you haven't answered. And so, and this this kind of comes back to the modeling again. I see I see modeling as very much an adjunct to this kind of experimental sort of method, where you're basically helping you to determine what the next experiment is that you really ought to do to answer the questions you need to answer. But but yeah, I I wrote a piece on this on LinkedIn about uh, I likened a good R and D team to a jazz ensemble rather than an orchestra, and and uh, you know I talk about this sort of quite a lot in that thing too. It's it's I I have certainly worked at companies where I have seen this kind of management decision making going on, and it's really based on more on you know what the company needs to do but but without a real understanding of what the company is actually able to do and i've seen that i've worked quite a lot in software development too and i've also seen that in software development where you have a similar kind of situation where you have people who've never really written or tested code overseeing a software development effort and i mean one company i worked at i ended up having to leave because they 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 felt that testing was was you know, an unnecessary waste of time and money. And this was not an ideal world, I was told. And in an ideal world, we would test everything. But here, we just don't have time to do that. And so um, it all turned really sour for them, because of course, a lot of the software they were rolling out just didn't work. And it was embarrassing. And I was embarrassed to be a part of that um, effort. So yeah, I've spoken with a couple of um, professional testers um, about that uh, very issue. Um, and, uh, I, I, so I have a little bit of a sense of how frustrating it can be, um, to be part of a project where people are, um, just profoundly mishandling it under a, uh, false view of efficiency. Um, speaking of writing, uh, code, um, I w- wanted to ask you, what was the inspiration for you and Alex to write Python for the Life Sciences, which is uh, a book devoted to helping people uh, who haven't coded before to learn how to do so? The, the, the biggest single reason is that, um, p- well, partly it stems from what we said earlier about the fact that, you know, modeling and computational approaches are still relatively non-mainstream in biology. What that translates into is that there's, there isn't really much in the way of a computing component in the sort of core life sciences curriculum. So most biologists can go through college and pretty much avoid using computers other than maybe, you know, for, for writing their articles and maybe using Excel spreadsheets and, and stuff like that. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> if a few of them are lucky, they may they may get to, to have some kind of training in MATLAB or R or something like that. But for the most part, a lot of biologists graduate and start doing, you know, research. They they go they go into grad school or even become postdocs without ever having really 
um, done much in the way of computational research. And, and what you see in labs is people doing uh, endless calculations still with hand calculators, people, you know, using Excel to process all their spreadsheet data, you know, painstakingly copying stuff into tables or, you know, nowadays there's, there's more lab automation. So a lot of lab instruments produce, um, you know, data that's ready to, to, to be visualized in, in Excel. But Excel is a, you know, it's a, it's a great tool for what it is, but it's, it's not really the tool for, for most quantitative biology. There, there are certain things for sure you can do with it, but but being able to to write code is just you know gives you that opportunity to look at your data in ways that's just not possible using you know sort of hand calculators and spreadsheets and so that was really the the major our uh, major um yeah the, i so so when i worked for example at, at one pharmaceutical company i worked at i remember that that the the really the only numerical piece of software in the entire company that was used by everybody from the financial people in the you know accounts department to the scientists at the bench was was Microsoft Excel and that was really you know in a in a company doing you know this the kind of quantitative work that drug development is you know this is the sort of progressive aggregation of knowledge it it just you know it struck me as kind of bizarre that uh you know, in such a quantitative field where data and numbers are so prevalent and more so now than ever, that that, that you have so many people in, working in that field who just have no real, you know, way of using computers to their full potential. And why did you choose to focus on Python? Because it's, I, I think in the book we call it the Swiss army knife of programming languages. It, it's a wonderful language that you can just start using right away. You uh i i trained also in java for example and java requires you to 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 use the kind of object oriented paradigm for programming right from the outset so you're already there's a there's a sort of a steep learning curve there for anybody who's not familiar with object oriented programming and for, it's also kind of a, a sledgehammer to crack a nut if you just want to write some small scripts to open a file and read some data in and reprocess the data in a different format or you know find some patterns in a sequence or something like that you don't really need to be uh you know writing object oriented code all the time um so so i like the fact that python gives you that option to to just to to jump in and start writing the kind of procedural code that we all used to write when we were writing in c and basic and stuff or you can, you know, you can for, for more complex applications, you can scale it up and and you know use that kind of object-oriented programming paradigm to help you, you know, to organize all the moving parts and and write applications in the large. Um, you mentioned earlier, and I, I believe I read on one of your blog posts that the book took you about a year to complete, right, or to get to the state it, it, that it's in now. Was it your plan from the beginning for it to take a year? No. I think the book ended up being much bigger than we thought it would be. Um, I think it was going to be kind of a little, you know, 50 to 100 page thing about biocomputing with Python and kind of almost like a sort of a get you going tutorial. But then uh, it just kind of blossomed, mainly based on our previous, both of our previous experiences in, you know, sort of modeling and using Python in our own research. And, you know, oh, wouldn't that be cool? You know, remember when I did that... uh, stuff with the robots and remember when i did that stuff with you know next generation sequencing we should include some of that and so 
uh, there was definitely, I guess, in the software world, you'd call it feature creep. <laughs> right. But 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 we're very happy the way it came. I mean, we were we're glad we did it. I mean, it's much more of a full fledged book than I think we imagined in the beginning. It it looks great. Um, and I wanted to ask you, um, you didn't use the MeanPub workflow to make your book. Um, rather, um, do, you used our bring your own book feature to upload your book so you can sell it on our bookstore. Right. And I was wondering what tools you made or you used to make your uh, great so, looking book. So the entire book was actually built and edited in Google Docs because we needed a collaborative platform. And I, I use Macs uh, and, and uh, I, I use Linux and Windows as virtual machines on my Mac, but Alex is a, a Linux guy. And so he, you know, we, we couldn't really use something that was primarily in the Mac world as a, as a tool. And so we settled on Google Docs and it worked really, really well until we got up to about 250 pages. And then you start to see the limitations of, of trying to edit large documents in a web browser. It's the, you know, it, it, it I, I, I've got to give the Google people credit for the, you know, Google docs is a great tool. Um, but you know, once it, once you, once you start to get to a, so I think we, I think we reached pretty much the sort of maximum size that's practical for a, for a Google document sort of around the 300 pages mark. We already started to see that it was unresponsive sometimes and the other issues that we had were when you when you create a PDF out of the Google Doc, it does it does some silly things. For example, all of the internal links um, point back to the original Google document and not to the to the new PDF. So if you have a link in your new PDF to page 100, it will actually point to the to the to page 100 in the original Google Doc, which is which is kind of absurd. I mean, if you're exporting to PDF, you would hope those internal links would remain internal. So what we ended up having to do was to uh, save the entire document as a um, a docx file in Microsoft Word format, and then we used the Mac Pages program. Um, we we in, well initially, let me say I tried using Microsoft Word 2011, which is the version I happen to have on my Mac, and that does not preserve the links. So the first when we first published the book on LeanPub, all the links inside the, the external links were dead. Um, because Word didn't handle those properly. And when we put it into um, the Pages, the, the Mac Pages program, then it did a good job of exporting the uh, exporting the document. And also there were some other issues with Word. The images, you know, kind of would stray. That it, it, it didn't really know how to place images. We, where we placed images in text, the images would stray into the margins of the page and look kind of ugly. And you, you ended up having to go and do a lot of like fixing of the positions of the images and stuff like that. So in the end, the, the workflow was Google Docs, save as DocX, import into uh, Mac pages, fix any kind of page formatting stuff that we needed to fix, and then, and then export as a PDF. And that, that, that worked for us. Well, that's a, that's quite a journey. Thanks for, thanks for all of the details. Um, I'm sorry, there's a bit of construction noise in the background. Um, so hopefully I can edit that out. Um, I wanted to ask, um, for any other self-published authors listening, both of your books have great covers and I really like the one for Python for the life sciences where the sort of strand of DNA is the snake, you know, presumably a Python. Um, and I was wondering, um, do you have any advice for people about how to uh, find a source of good book cover? I I used Keynote to make that cover. Wow. Uh, 
which is the Mac, you know, kind of the Mac equivalent of PowerPoint. I, I find that to be a really versatile graphic design tool. I, I don't claim any, you know, great expertise or knowledge in graphic design, but um, Keynote is actually a really great tool if you want to, you know, blend some images together and, and you know, make some simple shapes. If, if you look at the cover of the book, it's all, you know, fairly simple shapes and, you know, it t- takes a bit of playing around with gradients and colors to get to get to get it right. But yeah, Keynote, it's a fantastic tool for putting together designs that that cover was completely designed using Keynote. You have a section um, at the back of your book where you ask for readers to send you any errors or omissions they may find um, to send, and to send them to you by email. Have you had any responses like that? Not yet. No. But we really I mean, one of the things that attracted us to LeanPub, we both have you know, software development backgrounds is we, you know, we really like the, the sort of iterative publishing model. Um, it, it's, it's liberating to be able to get a book out there, not have to worry that every little typo is fixed. Like, you know, that, that every, every, you know, every diagram has the, you know, the right caption, obviously, you know, we, we did our very best. We didn't want to put something out there that was, that was looked sloppy or, or, you know, half finished for, for our own pride as much as anything. But, but it's great to know that if you know that there are always errors and it's great to know that with the lean pub model you have a way to sort of you know go back in fix the errors upload the book and and all your readers are able to to benefit from that too so it's that's that's a really nice feature something that we were you know that that really attracted us to lean pub uh do you plan to make a print version of your book yes we do yeah we actually do so actually yeah i can show you on the video here's a Here's a proof copy. Oh, there it is. With the cover, I actually, I, I actually expanded the cover so that we're on the back and has the spine. We we went to a, a local bookstore. They have a, a a machine called a Gutenberg machine, obviously named after the old you know printing press, and it does a really nice job of printing books on demand. Uh, it's a, it's a black and white copy now, so the interior of the book is black and white. The machine unfortunately doesn't do color. But um, we are exploring a number of places right now where we might be able to produce physical copies of the book because there are people who still like physical copies of the book. And I think also for libraries and schools and things like that, there's still a place for, you know, having a physical copy of a book. If there was one feature we could build for you or one problem we could fix, um, what would that be? I think putting putting the book together and collaborating on the book is something that um it would be great to have a more fully fledged tool for doing that kind of thing and not not necessarily in a web browser i mean it could be a like an app so so for example i've 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 made some photo books previously and a lot of those um photo book uh online services they have an app you can download to your desktop and you can actually build the book in the app and then it publishes it to the to the uh to the website for you so you you know you're not kind of being forced to work in a browser with all of the the limitations that entails so i i I feel like it would be it would be great to have something and also a a a tool for creating a book that would allow you to immediately go into multiple formats pdf moby ebook uh, EPUB, sorry, you know all this sort of thing. Oh yeah, we do. We do have that. If you use, if you write your book using Reaper, right, yeah, we automatically right. produce PDF, EPUB, Mobi, and you can make a website if you right. want to. But right. around around collaboration, that's something where 
you know, it's this huge area where we're, we're definitely going to be doing work at some point. Um, so, so for I can give you an exa- some tangible examples of the kind of problems we face. And so we had lists of topics and things we wanted to cover. And, you know, we, we put them all out on this whiteboard that's actually behind my desk. And, and, and then you have things like, well, you know, okay, I wrote the chapter, you know, do we introduce Matplotlib in chapter four or chapter six? Oh, I think you introduced it. So some, some, you know, some parts of the book, you know, we would have explanations for things where somebody had already introduced it previously in the book and we'd have to move the explanation back in the book. You know, had we covered all the topics um, it, it would be really nice to have a, almost a kind of a meta book assembler so that you could sort of assemble the book in a, in a kind of outline manner with all the topics you want to cover. And then, and then as people are working on it, you could, you know, tick off the topics and where they first appear in the book and, and all that kind of thing. It's, it's more of a, a meta, you know, the structure of the book, like a, a way to, to collaboratively define and and keep track of the structure of the book as you're working on it a lot of the features of of most sort of book editors are focused very much on layout and you know putting images in the text and the markup and all the you know what's bold and where the links are and you know chapter headings and tables of contents and stuff like that which is great and you need all that stuff too but i don't see much in the way of meta you know, meta kind of, do you know what I mean? I don't know if meta is the right word, but no, yeah, I do. I do know what you mean. Thanks. You know, that's very clear. And that's, um, that's, that's really interesting. Um, it's a really great observation too. I mean, especially that, um, you know, there's so much, uh, emphasis placed in so many writing tools on formatting, um, but not on structure. Um, when, you know, presumably when it comes to the reading of a text, uh, or most texts for most purposes, the structure of the text is far more important um, than the formatting. Um, so that's a really good good um, observation. Thanks for that. We'll uh, we'll process that internally. I mean, Alex and I both used. I don't know if you've ever used Tech or LaTeX previously. The sort of these these sort of markup languages for 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 creating typeset uh, text. But um, you know something along those kind of lines. But but that way you can really define the meta structure of the book as well. I, I mean, that, that, that's the kind of, you know, and th- and then it would be, I mean, like you said, the structure of the book is really important. And then and then to be able to, you know, in, in, in essence, kind of apply style sheets, you know, kind of like that CSS kind of model where you have the structure of the book and you say, OK, a chapter is going to have a header and a footer and it's going to have, you know, this block of content at the beginning that describes the chapter and maybe a picture and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you, you kind of lay that all out and then you can just, you know, you know, okay, let's look at it in this style. Let's look at it in this style, you know, and just kind of, you know, really, really decouple the content and the structure of the book from the, from the layout. Yeah. That's a request that we've had, um, from, um, some of our best authors in the past. And it's something that, that we're thinking about. Um, it's, uh, it's really, Conceptually, it's very consistent it, as an idea. It's very consistent with Lean Pub's approach to writing, which mm-hmm. is that when you're writing, you should be writing, and you should consider formatting to be a separate process. Right. Um, like you know, for 99.9% of books, that's the appropriate approach. And separating those mm-hmm. things two out conceptually is is very important to us. Um, right. So. Um, Unfortunately, I think uh, our time is about up, and I just wanted to say um, thank you for a great interview um, and for uh, making such a great book, um, and, oh, thank you. Uh, and uh, for being a Lean Pub author. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, we loved it. I'm sure it won't be our last one. <laughs>